You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Glad that you've joined us this morning. We're going to be studying Romans chapter 12 this morning. Encourage you to open your Bibles there. Romans chapter 12. So New Testament, and then you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, and then Acts. And then right after Acts is Romans. And we're in chapter 12, so you can turn there in your Bible or, or in your Bible app. If you're using a Bible app, we encourage you to use the Version Bible app because in there you can go into the menu and check out the notes. And we've got the stuff on the screen and some extra stuff as well in there that you can use to interact with the sermon and go a little deeper. So we're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we we thank you that we have this time dedicated and set aside to read it, to consider it, to apply it to our lives. And we pray that, Lord, as we do that this morning, that we would truly hear your voice speaking to us through your word. And Lord, that truly we would be people whose lives are affected by these living words. Lord, we pray that as we come to them, Lord, you would do a work inside of us, a transformative work. Lord, we pray that we would see you, Jesus, that we would understand the gospel in a more clear way and that it would change our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, relationships are a pretty big deal. I I think you know that. They're a huge part of our lives, and we all have relationships. That's the thing. Relationships make up a huge part of our lives. We all have them, right? So whether it's a relationship parent to child or spouse to spouse, whether it's a friendship, maybe it's a dating relationship or a working relationship with colleagues or business partners, or even your relationship with your neighbors, life is made up of relationships. And our relationships are probably the most significant aspect of what makes our lives our lives. I was watching a documentary the other day with my kids. It was about the development of the internet. It was really interesting watching all these news reports from like the the early 90s where people are like, what is the internet? Who, who's in charge of it? Like, what are, we're never going to use this thing. It's totally useless. Like, it's never going to catch on. And apparently it did, you know, but it was cool showing my kids like, here's what a dial-up modem sounded like, you know, and, and there were all these news reports, like I said, but but here's what was interesting. They, they said that as the internet developed, the, the thing that caused it to change from being like a tool that people use, like universities and businesses use, to being something that everybody used was when it shifted into being something that people used for social purposes. In other words, when it was started to be used for interpersonal relationships, that's when it changed. That's when it took off. And if you consider nowadays how big social media has gotten, it just solidifies this point 
that as human beings, we are relational creatures. We long for contact with other people. We are relational beings and social creatures. Theologians believe that this is part of the mark of God. You know, the Bible says that we are created in God's image because God is a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one God who exists eternally in three persons, perfectly unified in dynamic relationship with one another. And we are created in that image. And so therefore we are relational beings. Not only are relationships a big part of our lives, but God cares a lot about how we do relationships. He has a lot to say about our relationships. And, and here's part of the reason for that. There are several, but here's one of the reasons. You have never met a person who has terrible interpersonal relationships and is at the same time a happy and joyful person. It's not possible. You've probably experienced it yourself that when you have a hurt relationship in your life, it affects everything. Just yesterday, I was texting with my neighbor. I have the greatest neighbors. I love these people. And we had kind of a misunderstanding where he thought that I was joking and I thought that he was joking. It turns out neither of us were joking. And for several hours there, I, I told my wife, I can't think about anything else. I'm, I'm upset that, you know, me and my neighbor aren't on good terms right now. And, and we got it sorted out and all. But my point is, when, you're, when something's wrong in a relationship, it affects every part of your life. It's hard to feel good and be normal. And on the other hand, when relationships are good, when everything's firing on all cylinders, it's like something comes alive in you that's not alive when your relationships are broken. And that's why consistently, you know, researchers, what they say is that the number one factor in a person's well-being, a person's sense of satisfaction and general happiness in life, it's not having money or, or even having success or even having fame. It is good relationships. It's relationships. See, the difficulty, though, that all of us face, we're relational beings, and yet we live, especially us now, not only do we live in a broken world, but those of us alive today in our society, we live in the most individualistic society that has ever existed, perhaps in the history of the world. And as a result, a ton of research you know, has been done on this factor. And, and as a result, we have these staggering rates of mental health issues. And a lot of mental health issues, they're saying, are related to this sense of isolation and loneliness in our society, which has only been exasperated by our online culture. So, so we got into this online culture because we wanted to be more connected, and we are, but even in this, we're still more isolated, and it's leading to even more problems. And this has reached epidemic levels. Just last year, the United Kingdom appointed a special government task force and a leader of that task force to deal with the problem of loneliness in their society because the link between loneliness and mental health problems is very strong. So as a society and as individuals, we're made for relationships, we long for relationships, but we're broken. And as a result, our relationships are broken. So what can be done? What, what option, what hope do we have? Well, here in Romans chapter 12, we have a section from the Bible, which is all about interpersonal relationships. But here's the thing I, I don't want you to miss as we look at this. See, this section is very practical. As we move on from, uh, the, to the rest of the book of Romans, we're going to see a lot of really practical stuff. But here's what I don't want you to miss. If you think that all this is about is just kind of tips and strategies, some good advice from the Bible about how you can live better and be a better person or, you know, just some life hacks to help you succeed in life, you're missing the point of this section. There's something much deeper, much bigger going on here. And that's why the title of today's message is How the Gospel Transforms Relationships. And if you don't get that part, that this is about how the gospel transforms relationships, then you're missing this whole thing. 
See, this isn't just relationship advice from the Bible. This is something much more powerful than that, much deeper than that. What we need is not just good advice. There's a lot of good advice out there. What we need is to get to the very heart, the root of the problem. We need to get at the core of what's causing the problem. And what we need more than anything is transformation. Last week, Mike taught and and he said this phrase, which was great. And I just want to repeat it. That transformation means being changed from the inside out. So transformation means being changed from the inside out. It's not superficial. It's not just dealing with the symptoms. It's dealing with the core, the root, the heart of the problem. And so that's why here in this section... It really begins in chapter one. We're starting in chapter, in verse three, because, I'm sorry, it starts in uh, verse one. We're starting in verse three because Mike looked at the first two verses last week. We're starting in verse three now, but I gotta tell you, we can't understand this section unless we go back to verse one where it says this, therefore, right? That word therefore, whenever you see that in the Bible, just circle, highlight, underline. Whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself the question, what is that therefore, therefore? So the therefore in chapter uh, 12, verse 1, is referring to everything that came before it. So 11 chapters worth of material, everything that came before it. And what it's saying is, because of everything that I've told you up until now, here's what it means. Here's what it means for you practically. Here's the implication moving forward. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has been explaining to us and showing us what the gospel is, the good news of Jesus Christ. He explained to us that the root issue of what's wrong with the world, but not just with the world, what's even wrong with each of us individually is sin. God is righteous and we are unrighteous. And not only is sin messing up the world, not only is it messing up our lives, but it has eternal implications as well. See, God is going to judge the world righteously and he's going to judge us too. But see, here's the amazing, incredible, earth-shattering news. It's this, that God sent his son to die for us. He sent Jesus who came and he lived the life that we should have lived. He fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements on our behalf. And he died in our place. He died the death that we should have died. He took the judgment for us in our place. And that's God's gift to us. It's what he gives us. Jesus' perfect righteousness, he gives it to us as a gift. He accounts it to us. And he took our unrighteousness on himself. And so as a result of that, because of the gospel, now we can stand before God unashamed and without fear. And rather than eternal judgment, we get eternal life. And so Paul says, in light of all that, therefore, therefore, here's what that means practically for your life every day moving forward from here. He begins in chapter 12 by talking about how the gospel transforms our relationships. That was what we see here. And so here's kind of an outline for the chapter. The gospel changes the way that we relate to, number one, God. That's what we looked at last week. Number two, the gospel changes how we relate to ourselves. And the gospel also changes how we relate to one another and even to our enemies. So last Sunday, Mike led us through the first one of those, how the gospel changes how we relate to God. So next Sunday, we're going to be talking about how the gospel changes and transforms the way that we relate to culture and society. So you won't want to miss that. But this Sunday, today, we're looking at chapter 12, starting in verse 3, and looking at how the gospel changes our relationships interpersonally with other people. So number one, the gospel changes our relationship or transforms our relationship with ourselves. 
Paul begins in verse three. He says, for by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You know, most of us, what we struggle with is some of us struggle with thinking too highly of ourselves and others of us struggle with thinking too lowly of ourselves. But here's what's incredible about the gospel. The gospel doesn't allow us to think too highly of ourselves, nor does it allow us to think too lowly of ourselves. I'll explain that in just a second. But you know, in the past, say, 30, 40 years, there's been this big movement encouraging people to have more self-esteem. And in many ways, that's a very good thing because, for example, it has encouraged women to uh, respect themselves and not to tolerate mistreatment. And as a dad with two daughters, I like that. I, I want my girls to grow up in a world where they're going to be respected and valued and treated well. And I want them to know that they have value. So the self-esteem movement has really helped people understand that they don't deserve to be abused or mistreated by others. But on the other hand, see, the, the focus of the self-esteem movement also feeds into something inside of us in our human nature. And that is that we all have a tendency to be self-consumed, self-absorbed, self-centered. We, we spend most of our time thinking about ourselves. I was talking to somebody this week and, and uh, this person was telling me that they were really worried about what other people thought about them and in this particular area of their life. And, and what I told this person was I said, look, Here's the thing that I've learned over the years, right? Is that nobody's as obsessed with you as you are, right? And though you think that everybody's thinking about you because you're always thinking about you. But you know what they're thinking about? They're all thinking about themselves. And so it's like everybody's just totally obsessed with thinking about themselves, spends all this time thinking about themselves, and they all think that other people are thinking about them. But the truth is, those people aren't thinking about them. They're also thinking about themselves too. And that's why it's such a rare and special thing when you meet somebody who's truly genuinely thoughtful or who, who truly genuinely listens in a conversation rather than just waiting for you to stop so they can say their piece. It's totally possible to have low self-esteem and still be completely self-centered. Do you know that, right? Like, so it's possible to have low self-esteem and still be completely self-centered and self-absorbed. And there's a danger in that. And here's what it is. The studies continually show that there is a link between self-absorption and depression. Basically, the more you think about yourself, the more unhappy you will be. And so what's the solution? Paul is telling us here in Romans 12, verse 3, that what we need to do is we need to let the gospel shape the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we view ourselves. He says in verse 3, we're to think about ourselves with sober judgment. That means to have an accurate, well-balanced view of ourselves. And the way that we do that is by letting the gospel inform and shape the way that we think about ourselves and view ourselves. That's why he says at the end of verse 3, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So the gospel is the standard by which we measure ourselves. And here's the reason. Because here's the thing I said earlier. The gospel prevents us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And it also prevents us from thinking more lowly of ourselves than we ought to. The only way to have truly sober, balanced view of who we really are is by viewing ourselves through the lens of the gospel. Here's why. See, the gospel message tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of, of God's glory. That all of us have sinned. And in order for us to be saved, we need God to rescue us, to do a miracle. We can't save ourselves it's God who comes to us and rescues us from our own mess. And, and see, that truth, it humbles us on the one hand, but it lifts us up on the other hand because it says that we can't think 
that we're better than other people. We're all on a level playing field. We're all sinners who can't save ourselves. And yet it tells us that we're extremely valuable and precious to God, that God loves you, that you're absolutely precious and valuable to him. You're not allowed to think of yourself as worthless or trash because look, he left heaven for you. He suffered and died for you. He traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns for you. That's how precious you are to him. That's how much value you have in his eyes. And so don't undervalue yourself. Don't think that you're worthless and it's not okay for other people to misuse you or, or abuse you. No, you should not think too highly of yourself nor too lowly of yourself. You should have sober judgment. See, the way of life and joy is to think soberly about yourself, not more highly than you ought, nor more lowly than you ought. You know, so many of us spend our lives, so many people and so many of us, we spend our lives trying to create value. How many of you can relate to that? You create, you're trying to create value. You're trying to do things to prove that you have value. Trying to create reasons for people that you can point to and say, this is why I matter. This is why my life matters. This is why I have value. This is why I'm worthy to be loved and accepted because I can do this thing or because I look this way or because I've accomplished this or because I have this attribute. Therefore, you should love me and accept me. And you know what this leads to? It leads to pride. So when we're talking about not having pride, see, this is what it leads to. If you're always trying to prove yourself, it leads to pride. The reason is because what we do, one of the ways that we find our value is by pointing to things that we see as weaknesses in other people and strengths in ourselves. And we say, well, look, I'm more valuable than that person is because I can do this thing or I have this attribute. And you know, this leads to all kinds of things like prejudice and racism. Think about that. If you're always trying to prove that you have value by pointing to somebody else and saying, I have value because I'm better than that person in this area, whether it's my race or my status, and you say, that is what gives me value. That's why I'm better than those people. The message of the gospel totally undercuts that. It says you can't do that. And here's why. You already have value. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to prove it. You already have value. Look at what God has done for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. And therefore, you don't have to put other people down. You certainly don't have to find your value in being better than other people. See, in this section specifically, and starting in verse 4 as we get into the next point, he's going to be talking about gifting about gifting. This is an area, right, where people tend to get prideful. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, hey, even if you are gifted in a certain area, don't let that be a source of pride. First of all, you got that from God. It's not from you anyway. And how could you look down on other people? Uh, you are to be using your gifting for the building up and the lifting up of other people. So rather, your sense of value and your sense of worth, it needs to be rooted in the gospel, that you are loved by God, that he loves you so much that he gave his son for you. He invited you into a relationship with him so that he could spend eternity with you. And when you really get that, here's what it does. It makes you, on the one hand, incredibly humble, and on the other hand, incredibly confident. So you can be incredibly humble at the same time that you're incredibly confident because of what Jesus did for you. And what it does is it takes, it sets you free to take your focus off of yourself and it sets you free that you can actually focus on other people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, Jesus died so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves. See, we now live for something bigger than ourselves. We live for God, for his mission, which is all about reaching other people, building bridges, and reaching people with truth and grace. 
So that brings us to our second point. The gospel transforms our relationships with one another. So there's this term one another that's used throughout the Bible. It's used 53 times in the New Testament. One another. It's used three times here in these verses. Verses uh, 4 through 16. And whenever this phrase one another is used in the Bible, it's referring to how Christians are to relate to each other. So it says things throughout the Bible like forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, be dedicated to one another, live in harmony with one another, love one another, be devoted to one another. And so what we have here in verses 4 through 16 is a description of how as Christians we are to relate to one another in light of what Jesus has done for us and who we are in him. And the metaphor he uses here is the metaphor of a body. Now, all of us have a body, right? So we can relate to this. Your body has different parts. Like your eye has different abilities than your liver. You know, your eye can do things that your liver can't do, but your liver can also do things that your eye can't do. They both have their function, and they're both very important. Now, some parts of your body are very visible. Some parts of your body get a lot of attention. And other parts of your body are not visible to people's eyes, but they're still doing a function that is absolutely vital. Like you can live without an eye or without a hand, but you can't live without a liver. So the the parts that are doing the work behind the scenes are also vitally important out of sight. And so in the same way, the church, the body of Christ, There's great diversity in roles and functions. Some parts are more visible than others, but all parts are important. And when the body is, part of the body is hurt or part of the body is missing, the whole body suffers because we need each other. So there's a sense of interdependency in this picture of a body. And here's the other thing. You can't be a body by yourself. Think of some of the pictures that God uses to describe who his people are called to be. He says, you're a city set on a hill. Guess what? You can't be a city all by yourself. And you can't be a body all by yourself. You're a part of a body, but you're not a body on on your own. So just imagine how creepy that would be, like, right, rogue hand, like walking across the floor. You get a hammer, and you beat that thing to death. You don't want to see a rogue hand walking around. You see a pancreas just lying around watching TV by himself. It'd be weird. In the same way, Christianity was never meant to be a, a solitary endeavor just between you and God. See, Christianity, the church isn't just like a support group where you have your relationship with God and then you join a, a support group or a club. No, we're saved when, when we are brought into the body and made part of the people of God. You see, Christianity was not meant to be a solitary practice. It's a group activity. You can't do it alone. You need to be connected to the body. You need to be connected to other people and using your gifts. You need what they have and they need what you have in order to be whole and healthy. He says in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. When, When the different parts of the body understand what their function is and they work together in cooperation, contributing what each of them can contribute, then in a beautiful way, the work of God is done through the church as a body. It reminds me of the tool convention. You know, in the workshop, there was a convention. All the tools got together, and the hammer was residing over the meeting. And and he stood up, and he started the meeting, but immediately the screwdriver objected, and he said, I object, hammer, because all you do is make a lot of noise. You're always driving home your point. You're always nailing people on things. And the the hammer said to the screwdriver, well, you know what? All you ever do is screw around, right? Because he's a a screwdriver, right? And so... um, And the screwdriver said, well, what about the plane? I mean, look at this guy. His work is so 
totally shallow. And the plane said, well, you know what I don't like? I don't like the sandpaper. That guy rubs me the wrong way. The ruler stood up and he said, you know, honestly, none of you guys measure up. And on the other, you know, they just kept going back and forth and arguing and bickering all day long until finally the master craftsman walked into the workshop and one by one he took each tool in the right way at the right time in order to create something of great beauty. See, that's a picture of us in the church. Not everybody is like you, and that's a good thing. You don't want everybody to be like you. That would be bland. Like That would be vanilla all the time, right? It would be that one note on the piano all the time. It might be a good note, but one note on the piano doesn't make a song. We need what other people have to offer, and they need what you have to offer. Even the people who rub you the wrong way, you need them in your life. They have a role to play in the body. You need what they have, and they need what you have. In verses 6 through 8, Paul now gives a list of some of the spiritual gifts. Another list of spiritual gifts is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me tell you this. Neither of these lists is meant to be comprehensive or exhaustive. These are lists of some of the gifts that God gives by his grace for the building up of the body of Christ. So here in Romans 12, Paul lists seven gifts, and they they really fall into three categories. So seven gifts that fall into three categories. Here are the categories. Speaking gifts, leading gifts, and serving gifts. So speaking gifts, leading gifts, and serving gifts. Now let's just run through each of these uh, individually. So prophecy, he begins with that. Let the one who prophesies prophesy in accordance with their faith. So prophecy in a biblical sense is speaking of speaking forth a message from God. So the Old Testament prophets, when they would speak, they would speak forth God's message for the people. Sometimes that message would include something which was foretelling something that would happen in the future, but in the truest sense, it was forthtelling of God's word to the people, a message from God for the people. Now, one of the ways that we do that nowadays in the church is often practiced through preaching of the word on Sunday mornings, right? A person is speaking forth a message from God for the people. Next one we see is service. This speaks of practical service. You know, this is a spiritual gift. Did you know that? That practical service is a spiritual gift. I've talked to a lot of people who say, you know, I'm not sure that I'm particularly gifted or skilled in any area, or, or maybe I am, but you know what? I see a need over here in the church, and I just, I just want to fill in. I just want to fill the gaps wherever there's a need. See, that is a gift that builds up the body of Christ. It's very important. One of the things that people often ask is, well, maybe there's a ministry that needs some help, but I don't know if I should do it because I don't know if I'm gifted to serve in that area. Well, here's what I would tell you. Sometimes what happens is when you step out and fill a need, God gives you the gift that you need to effectively serve in that area. See, here's the thing about this list. Two, two things I want to point out. Some of these gifts are things that people have all the time. Right? They can just tap into any day, 24-7. They're just there all the time. And other things, other gifts here, are, are gifts that God gives people on a certain occasion in a particular setting in which it is needed. And the other thing is this. Some of these gifts correspond with a person's natural abilities and talents, and others of these gifts don't correspond to their natural talents and abilities. And so what that means is this. If there is an area in the body 
where, where you can fill in a gap and you are gifted, well then by all means do it. it. On the other hand, if there's a need in the body, there's a gap and you can fill it, but you're like, I don't know if I'm gifted in that way. I want to tell you this, don't get hung up on, oh, well, I don't know if I'm gifted or not and, and all this stuff. I'm telling you this, jump in there and serve and ask God to empower you with the gift for that task and I absolutely believe that he will. So serving in practical ways is a gift. Next we see teaching, right? Teaching is all about instructing. It's all about making simple or making clear that which is complicated. And sometimes I've noticed that people think that in order to teach, they have to be given a special position. You know, oh, I'm called to teach, but I haven't been given a, a position, so I can't use my gift. Let me tell you this. You know what teachers do? They teach. They teach all the time. A person who's gifted to teach is going to teach. Whether it's kids or whether it's in a conversation after church or on the phone or anywhere, that's what they do. They teach. They instruct. They help people understand things they haven't understood before. And if that's your gift, then use it. Don't wait for somebody to give you a platform or a role. A teacher is a teacher because they teach. So next is encouragement or, or exhortation. Such an important gift in the world that we live in today. You know, it speaks of coming alongside someone, lending them your strength. It speaks of counseling someone through a bad time. Next, we read about giving. It says, let the one who contributes do so with generosity. This is speaking of contributing to the material or financial needs of the body of Christ. You know, this is when you say, I want to be a channel through whom God can provide for the material needs of the body. You know, I was listening to somebody I know tell a story recently about somebody they know, and he's a very generous person, and he was talking to this generous person's wife, and he was just commenting to her on how blown away he is by this man's attitude. Just, he's always giving, uh, both individually and, and in other ways, and he just constantly has this sense of generosity. And he said, yeah, you know, I just can't believe how generous and giving this guy is. And what his wife said was something incredible. She said, yeah, he's been that way ever since he became a Christian. I guess he just never got over getting saved. And I love that phrase. Think about that. He just never got over getting saved. All these years have gone by and he's still so blown away by God's grace. He just wants others to experience it. He wants to further the work of God. And I was thinking to myself, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy who never got over getting saved, right? For the rest of my life, right? I want to be that person where I never get to the point where I take it for granted or I think it's normal. I want it to be so tangible and so right there at the front of my mind that it changes how I live every day, that it changes how I relate to every aspect of my life. And I just want to challenge you with that today. What would it look like in your life for people to say that of you? That, oh yeah, she's just like that, or, or oh, he's just like that. She's just never gotten over getting saved. He's just never gotten over getting saved. What would your life look like if people were to say that about you? See, giving is a spiritual gift for the building up of the body of Christ. All of us are called to contribute, but some people have a special ministry which speaks of giving above and beyond what is average or normal. Next, you read about leadership, right? These are the people who organize and manage and lead others towards the vision that God has given for who he wants us to be and where he wants us to go. Next, you read about mercy. Mercy refers to meeting the practical needs of those who are down and out, the poor and the downtrodden. And this is stuff that we do here. We have a lot of opportunities for you to do this. We want you to get involved with Project Greatest Gift. We want you to get involved with the outreach to the homeless, right? There are plenty of opportunities for you to get involved with acts of mercy here at our church. 
So here's the point. In Jesus, here's how the gospel changes our relationships with one another. It makes us part of a new family and it makes us contributing members of a body. And here's the thing. If God has given you a certain gift or skill or if you just see a need in the body of Christ, we want you to get involved. We want you to contribute what you have so that all of us can benefit from it. And in your bulletins, there's, a, there's that thing that you can rip off, that contact card that you put in the, in the offering box. You'll notice on there, there's a box that says, I want to serve. If you check that box, we will email you and we'll give you a list of different ministry areas where you can serve. And so I want to encourage some of you to do that today and, and get involved and become a contributing part of the body. In verse 9, Paul goes on to talk about how the gospel changes the way that we relate to one another in the body of Christ. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what's evil. Hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I just want you to imagine, like close your eyes and imagine what your relationships would be like if it was a contest, if, if your relationships acted as if they're a contest for always trying to outdo one another and showing honor, right? Imagine what your marriage would be like if the husband tries to honor his wife and then she tries to outdo him and show him even more honor and then he tries to outdo her and show her more honor and back and forth in this upward spiral. Like what if your work relationships were like that? What if your family dynamic at home was like that rather than tearing each other down or cutting each other down? What if you were seeking to outdo each other in honoring each other? And that begins here in the body of Christ. This is what our relationships can be like rather than being critical or snarky or judgmental. What if we acted like we're in a competition with each other to outdo each other in showing honor? I tell you what, this would be an irresistible place if that was the kind of culture that we had. The church would be an irresistible place. It would be so different than the world outside. It would be so attractive. We think about what an environment that would be for your kids to grow up in. An environment where people are always seeking to just outdo each other in honoring one another. Think about what a safe environment that would be for you to bring other people into. They would never have to worry about being judged or being talked bad about behind their back. They would only know that I'm going to come into this place. I'm going to be built up. They're going to honor me. They're going to love me. They're going to encourage me. You know, a lot of people have been hurt by the church. They've been talked about. They've been judged, not by this church, but just by churches in general. But what these verses describe for us is a vision of the kind of community that God is calling us to be and what the church can be by God's grace. He says in verse 11, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own estimation. Jesus, sometimes I think it's easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know that? Like when somebody's going through a hard time, it's really easy to say, hey, I'm here for you. Hey, I'm really sorry that you're going through that. But it's a little bit harder sometimes to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Because envy can creep in. Like when you're struggling with infertility and someone gets pregnant and then somebody else gets pregnant. Or, or when you want to get married so badly, but it seems like everybody else is around you is getting married and meeting people and you just can't seem to do it. Or when someone experiences success in their business in a way that you are not experiencing success, it can be hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. 
But as a body, this is the reminder. We're in this together. Like we're, a win for one is a win for all. A loss for one is a loss for all. We weep together. We rejoice together. This is what it means to be a body. And I love this phrase he uses there at the end. He says, associate with the lowly. You know, Jesus was so good at that, wasn't he? Associating with the lowly. In fact, he was so good at it that people were scandalized by it. Like he wasn't, see, Jesus wasn't always trying to sit at the cool kids table. And I love that about him. I think that if Jesus would have walked into the proverbial lunchroom, like he would have purposefully sought out the misfits, those who, who no one else was sitting with. He would have gone and he would have sat with them and he would have befriended them. Let me tell you this. The problem with being cool is that it's not cool to be cool. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. See, the problem with being cool is it's not cool to be cool because, see, when people are trying to be cool, you cannot afford to be around other people who are not cool because then by vicariously, you are not cool, right? Like in order for some people to be cool, it means that other people have to not be cool and that's not cool. And we as God's people, we're called to associate with the lowly. And here's the reason why, because God associated with us when we were lowly. Do you know that? God didn't place his love on us because we were lovely. God placed his love on us in order to make us who were unlovely to make us lovely. That's how his love works. And we're called to love people in that same way that he loved us. We're called to love those who are unlovely in such a way that it helps them, it makes them, it helps them along that way to becoming lovely. That's what God has done for us in Christ. That's what it means to live out the gospel. We get to do that as his people. And then finally, this third one, we'll close with this. The gospel changes our relationship with our enemies. What about those people who aren't Christians and they hurt you or they, they sin against you, they do evil against you? How should you relate to those people? And what Paul says in verses 18 through 21, just to summarize it for you, he says this, we don't seek revenge, but we seek to build a bridge. We don't seek revenge, but we seek to build a bridge. We don't repay evil for evil, but we seek to overcome evil with good. See, the reason it's hard to do that is because all of us have this inbuilt sense of justice. We want justice. Something's done to us that's not fair, and we want there to be justice. We want it to be right. We want that person to pay. We feel that they should. And honestly, the reason we feel that is because that's a correct feeling. And what this section is telling us is that when we forgive those who sin against us, God isn't asking us to just, you know, let them get away with it. God isn't asking us to say that what they did was okay or that it wasn't a big deal. What this means is that we are trusting God to be God and to be judge and to let him handle it. It means that you trust God enough that you let him be the judge, that you let him take that role instead of trying to take it yourself. Peter tells us this about Jesus in 1 Peter. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so here's the thing. The gospel promises justice, but what it reminds us of is that we are not the ones who will dispense that justice. We're going to talk next week about the role of the police and the justice system in this whole dispensing of justice. And here's the thing. I'll just give you a preview. But like, hey, if somebody commits a crime against you, then by all means, call the police. But when it comes to personal offenses, do what Jesus did and entrust yourself to God. Don't seek revenge. Paul says in verse 18, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. And here's why, because relationship is the bridge over which truth travels. Relationship is the bridge that truth travels over. And so what we seek to do is to build relationships, not just for our own sakes, not just for what we can get out of it, but because we are called by God on a mission. 
And what we learn in this section is that the gospel enables us to do loving deeds even when we don't feel loving feelings. The gospel enables us to do loving deeds even when we don't feel loving feelings. Oftentimes, you know, if you do loving deeds, the loving feelings will follow. But if you wait for the loving feelings to come before you do the loving deeds, you're going to be waiting a really long time. You may be waiting forever. But the gospel enables us to do loving deeds even when we don't feel loving feelings. And as a result, bridges are built life-changing truth can travel over those bridges and reach people and change lives. And so in conclusion, you know, we live in a world today where there's such a great emphasis on self-care and, and being good to yourself and stay in a relationship only as long as it's good for you. But here's what we're reminded of in this section. Christ-like love costs us something. Christ-like love costs us something. Loving like Jesus did, it cost him something. And for us to love like Jesus loves, it's going to cost us something as well. But it's absolutely worth it. That's what you need to know. It's absolutely worth it. When you really understand what Jesus did for you, it changes the way that you relate to yourself. It makes you at the same time extremely humble and extremely confident. It changes how you relate to others. You have a new family and you're a contributing member of a body. And it changes how you relate to those who do evil against you. Rather than seeking to repay evil for evil or seeking revenge, you seek to build a bridge. And I just want to end with this phrase. May we be those who never get over getting saved. Amen. Lord, thank you for this good message from your word. And it's challenging. It's definitely a vision of what can be. Lord, thank you that you are calling us and you are leading us from where we are into this vision of what can be by your grace. Lord, we ask for your spirit to empower us and lead us that this vision might become a reality here amongst us in our lives individually and as our church corporately. So Lord, we give you all the honor and praise and thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.